Hello from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, where this week we had the good fortune of connecting a student from our network with an AEI scholar to talk about the House of Representatives right as the vote was unfolding to elect Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana as the next Speaker of the House. After 22 days of stalemate, you simply cannot script this. Which is why you should be sure to subscribe and share the Campus Exchange podcast with your friends so you never miss an episode and so that you can stay in the know of all the ways you can engage with AEI, such as applying to the 2024 Summer Honors Program, which our application for next summer just launched. And I'll be talking more about it soon here on the show. But for now, you can go to aei.org slash SHP for the full list of 2024 seminar offerings. Now to this fortuitously timed episode. Joining us are AEI scholar Phil Wallach and AEI Collegiate Network member Shantanu Comet from UC Berkeley for a conversation about Congress. Enjoy the show. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Shantanu Kamath, and I'm a third-year undergraduate at the University of California, Berkeley, studying political science and economics. Today, I'm grateful to be, to be speaking with Philip A. Wallach, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, who focuses on the U.S. Congress, separation of powers, and the administrative state. Prior to AEI, Dr. Wallach was a senior fellow on governance studies at the Brookings Institution, where he authored the 2015 volume, To the Edge, Legality, Legitimacy, and the Responses to the 2008 Financial Crisis. Dr. Wallach was previously also a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a fellow with the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. He graduated with a bachelor's degree from Wesleyan University and a master's and PhD from Princeton University. In 2023, Oxford University Press published Why Congress, Dr. Wallach's insightful book, which delves into the uniqueness of Congress and the American constitutional system and how at its best it can embody the ideal of a deliberative body whose members represent constituents in a vast and pluralistic society. And it is about some of the ideas in that book and their implications for our time that we will be discussing today. Dr. Wallach, thanks for joining me. Great to be with you, Shantanu. So Newt Gingrich, who features prominently in Chapter 5, Conservatives Against Congress, is a seminal figure in both the Republican Party and the evolution of the House of Representatives as a whole. So I think that would be a good place to start. How have Mr. Gingrich's more confrontational approach and the institutional changes enacted during his speakership affected the Congress of the 21st century? Okay, so... To understand our current era of political polarization and sort of sharp-elbowed conflict playing out between the two parties at every possible moment, you, you need to give a little bit of attention to the era that preceded it. And from 1955 all the way through the end of 1994, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives without any interruption. That's four solid decades of Democratic control. Republicans in the minority for that long, long time gradually evolved a real contempt for the institution that they, that they came to think was run by Democrats for the benefit of Democratic interest groups. Newt Gingrich was the figure most emblematic of that transformation. He's somebody who came in in the late 1970s and throughout the 1980s, made a principled argument that Republicans should not just play along with this system. They should be actively attacking its corruption and working 
to regain the majority, which some people thought was just impossible for Republicans at that point. But Gingrich always insisted was was a, a live possibility. And so over the course of the 80s, a lot of Republicans who had been more moderate in their inclinations uh, came to think that the Democrats were running the House in a fairly imperious manner and were and were shutting Republicans out. Uh, they were they felt that Democrats in Congress were picking unnecessary fights with the Republican president, Ronald Reagan, and then George H.W. Bush. Uh, and they resented Democrats in Congress for that. And so Gingrich eventually, of course, helped Republicans win the 1994 midterms. He brought them out of the wilderness into the majority for the first time in four decades. So he was a figure of immense influence because of having led that transformation. And Gingrich had really an idea of how politics should work that was all about confrontation and all about drawing contrasts all about taking the conflict to the American people and, and letting them decide through elections. Um, he's really not about compromise. He's really not about legislative deliberation. He's, he thought that the deliberation sort of happened out in the media for the American people to decide. And so after he got elected Speaker of the House in 1995, you kind of had the sense that he thought that that sort of decided the most important questions about what should happen to American public policy. And he and Republicans in the House majority ran into a lot of very profound disappointments that year. Um, they, they sort of imagined themselves sweeping in and um, repealing all of these great society programs and restructuring the federal government from top to bottom. And they found that Senate Republicans were a lot less enthusiastic about these projects. They found that uh, the president, Bill Clinton, was much less of a pushover than they imagined he was going to be. Uh, and so they had a lot of disappointments and eventually sort of pulled back their sort of frontal assault and, and found ways of things they could compromise on. Of course, in 1996, pushed through a very important welfare reform bill that Clinton tried to make in part his own. But Gingrich's style of, of sort of seeking out confrontations, trying to make it all about the next election where the American people could have their say, that really left an imprint. And I would say ever since he left, that, that model has sort of predominated. And we've seen a centralization of power in congressional leadership and the leadership preoccupied with questions of how they can frame the next election, how they can steer the public policy agenda for the purpose of of uh, their political needs. That's something that in my book I have a lot of uh, criticism of because I, I do feel like for Congress to fulfill its potential that it needs to in our constitutional system, it has to be a place where compromise happens. It has to be a place where we don't just always think about appealing to the voters at the next election, but get things done today on the basis of what we think are, are the needs of the people. And I would say the Gingrich model leaves some room for compromise, but uh, but sort of pushes us against it. And then I would say, as I recently argued in a piece in The Atlantic, that as Gingrich's legacy has been passed down amongst Republicans, uh, compromise has gotten even, even less space. So uh, I think there has been a, a sense that for some members, seeking out confrontations all the time is the most important thing. It is somehow the metric of, of success for them. 
is how many confrontations they've uh, generated uh, rather than what they end up getting through into law. Yeah, you discussed a lot about the centralization of Congress, and that has many instantiations today, but one of them is a more tightly controlled floor. Um, One of Kevin McCarthy's initial detractors during the January 2023 speakership election, Representative Chip Roy, put it this way, "Uh, if you take away my ability as a member to be able to offer an amendment and to speak up and debate for it, then I am no longer truly representing them. That means all I'm reduced to is voting yes or no, up or down on some bill put together by other people's representatives. In Chapter 6 of the book, you reproduce a graph showing the demise of open rules uh, in the House. Throughout the 1990s, roughly half of all rules were open or modified open. Uh, But since 2005, the number stayed below 20%. And in the 115th, 116th, and 117th Congresses, 100% of rules were either structured or closed. What consequences has this had on the role of the House of Representatives as a deliberative body? Yeah, well, I'm very sympathetic to that position that, that Representative Roy stakes out there, you know, his sense that if all he's being asked to do is show up and vote yes or no, you know, based on the position of his party, basically, then that's pretty much erased the substantive importance of, of his representation. I, I think there's a lot to that. And so I think it's important to understand that the resistance to Kevin McCarthy back in January and the willingness to throw him out uh, this past month uh, is in part due to personal issues with McCarthy himself and distrust that he's uh, not been able to manage. But it's in part also uh, due to structural frustrations that a lot of members share, not just not just the ones who ultimately were willing to vote against McCarthy. Uh, I think... You know, you you did have more opportunities as a as a backbench member to make things happen on the floor through amendments in the past. I think you also had a sense that working through the committee process was a more reliable way of having influence in the past because the committee's bills were actually given the chance to succeed on the floor. Maybe maybe with the chance of also amending them there, but I think what a lot of members feel today is that on all the most important legislation you get a version of the bill worked out in the leadership offices at the last minute. And then it's put before members basically on an up or down vote. Maybe you get, let one or two amendments get voted on to, uh, to mollify some angry faction, but mostly you get an up or down vote. And yeah, that, that really has sort of sucked a lot of the life out of the place and members are frustrated with it. I think, Part of why they're frustrated is because the amount of diversity that's able to be represented if we just reduce everything to a Republicans versus Democrats axis is not sufficiently complicated to represent all of the disagreements amongst the different groups of the American public. I think there's a lot of internal dissension in both of these parties today that mostly gets suppressed. Leaders have been good at keeping it off the agenda. And I think a lot of the conservatives are saying, no, you you can't keep us off the agenda. We are willing to break the whole system down if you try to completely suppress us. We demand something different. And so that's part of what you're seeing play out in 2023 is the, the hopes that some different order will come to pass. 
Yeah, in, in the chapter about the triumph of partisan posturing over politics, you address some of those points, and in particular, how the incremental accumulation of power in House leadership, um, especially in the 21st century and the late 20th century, has occasionally precipitated a counter-response. Uh, until this month, the most prominent example involved Speaker John Boehner, uh, when the then-incipient House Freedom Caucus pressured him to resign in 2015. Similarly, in October 2023, Representative Matt Gates filed a motion to vacate Speaker Kevin McCarthy, which was supported by all Democrats as well as eight Republicans. What similarities and differences do you see in these two cases of Republican speakers, and what do they say about the state of the Republican conference, and how can that uh, be addressed, perhaps, in a Representative Mike Johnson speakership? Well, he's got his work cut out for him. Um, I think it's not just Boehner and McCarthy. More broadly, it's that ever since the Tea Party movement emerged at the time of the financial crisis, the Republican Party has really had a, a difficult time keeping itself together as a governing coalition in the majority. And so sometimes it's been in the minority, right? For the 2019 to 2022, it was back in the House minority, which is kind of an easier place to be. You can just rally your side together around opposition to the Democratic majority at that point. But when they're actually in the majority themselves and have governing responsibilities, they've found it pretty difficult to reconcile what the different parts of their party want. It seems like this far right wing uh, really wants conflict above all else. They hope that this conflict is going to somehow radically restructure our fiscal trajectory, especially. They hope it's going to make us cut back on federal spending in a really dramatic way. And they want some big kind of big showdown that's going to let that happen. Uh, whether that means shutting the government down for a while, maybe even seriously entertaining the possibility of a debt default on one of these debt ceiling raises, uh, they, they say it's worth it because it's so, we have such a crisis situation on our hands that we need to we need to just do an about face. And then the rest of the party says, well, we agree with a lot of your substantive concerns, but we don't think it's worth crashing the whole government or we don't think it's worth flirting with that default. And if you're not going to pass these bills with us, then we have to get together with Democrats and pass them. That's the predominant model, but it hasn't been actually a politically sustainable one. So Boehner brokered a deal with Democrats in the fall of 2015 and found that it was going to be hard for him to do that and keep his job. So he just decided, okay, he would broker the deal and take himself out of the equation, retire immediately afterward. Uh, that was how he got out of it. Paul Ryan, I think, as Speaker, was having a lot of the same troubles you know, especially in the first two years of the Trump administration, some of those cracks were beginning to widen into big fissures in the party. Once again, he he ended up retiring and the Republicans went back into the minority after the 2018 midterms. But he really had the same struggles and no obvious long term answer to them. And then McCarthy, you know, barely got himself the speakership because of the very narrow margin Republicans had this year. Uh, and never had an answer. And ever since he made the deal with Democrats about the debt ceiling back in March, it kind of seemed like uh, there were folks that were lying in wait for their moment to get rid of him. They were willing to vote down rules uh, that their party put forward, which is a really unusual thing for the House of Representatives. 
that's the rules are the way that the majority party structures the agenda. Most of the time, party votes in unison, but they wouldn't in this case. That that was sort of spelling big trouble for McCarthy, and and he never had an answer. It turned out he he was pretty good at projecting an air of sunny sunny Californian confidence for a little while, but it it it, it was paper thin. And uh, when Matt Gates decided to test it, I don't know that Gates knew he was going to get rid of McCarthy, but it turned out uh, he, he he did. So now it looks like as we are recording this, that Mike Johnson is on his way to becoming the next Speaker of the House after this long interregnum. But there's no obvious answer for him either. You know, I think he, he comes from a really conservative part of the party. And so perhaps that gets him some amount of kind of a honeymoon period coming in here at the beginning where conservatives will let him figure out a way forward without without coming for his job. But uh, there's still this underlying tension where folks like Matt Gates think it's it's more important to cause some crisis that gets America to get its act together than it is to keep the government open. Uh, and an, another big part of the party says, hey, there's a lot of things happening around the world. We need to attend to governing right now. We need to make sure we are sending money to Ukraine and to Israel and keeping this government going, even if Joe Biden is the president and we're not happy with everything that he does. So there's this basic divide in the Republican Party that hasn't gone anywhere just because Johnson will become the speaker. Uh, and how he manages that tension will be the story of, of uh, House politics in the next the next year or so. It's, neither I nor anybody else has any idea how that will go. One of Representative Mike Johnson's uh, list uh, on his list of priorities uh, in a letter he sent to his Republican colleagues was to restore regular order to the House of Representatives. Uh, similarly, former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, when asked on a December 2022 podcast with AEI's Kevin Kosar for one piece of advice he would give a future speaker, replied, decentralize the power, open the place up. You won't control or predict every outcome, but that's okay. That's the sloppiness of a republic and the way it should be. An open legislature would seem to embody both the promise of deliberation and compromise and also the perceived drawbacks of messiness and inability of the majority to get the full extent of its agenda passed. What would you say to people who fear that a return to a more open house could undermine their policy objectives, given that, in the words of Representative Thomas Massey, regular order is at odds with predetermined outcomes? And given this reality, is it actually plausible we see a return to regular order anytime soon? Well, yeah, you you raise the tension in a good way. So on the one hand, these hardline conservatives think it's absolutely imperative that we cut spending in a big way right now. On the other hand, they say they want more of a voice in the House. They want more open process. But more open process, in the end, lets a majority work its way, lets a bipartisan majority work its way, uh, work its will. And uh, there's there's a real tension there because it's very likely that a bipartisan majority will keep spending more or less on the trajectory that it's on right now rather than making any really dramatic cuts. And, you know, for those House conservatives who say they think we're facing an imminent crisis because of our inability our unwillingness to deal with our debt problem, that's not good enough. Well, you can't have both. You can't have an open process and say that somehow you want the small portion of the Republican Party to be dictating where the outcomes end up. So that is that is the tension. And I think Paul Ryan's advice to the future speakers that he, that he was giving in that podcast 
has a lot going for it to say, I'm the Speaker of the House, but ultimately that makes me a servant of, of the members of this body rather than a dictator deciding how things end up. And as the Speaker of the House, it's my job to facilitate deliberation and uh, allow the majority to work its will. I think if you can redefine the Speaker's role in that more modest way, then it becomes a not impossible job instead of an impossible job. And uh, I think you'll still find a lot of frustrations uh, because people will not be getting the policy objectives satisfied and they're going to be unhappy about that. And and maybe if there are big bipartisan deals getting through, they're going to start saying that the speaker is just allowing the the uniparty to dominate, right? That's sort of the line of, of the of the populist right right now. That the the uniparty is disconnected from the American people and and all about big spending. And so it's hard to know why that why that line of critique would go away from from using a more open style. But uh, I think I think it sort of uh, requires everyone to show up and see where the you know see what the cards are. Uh, if a majority is working its will, it's hard to see what people are really complaining about. Um, if you're giving them their chances in a more open process and they lose, well, that's the way it is. And, and I have to say, to Matt Gates's credit, in the speech that he gave uh, on the way to, to ousting McCarthy from the speakership, he, he said this. He said, give us our chances, and if we lose sometimes, that's okay. Well, okay, let's see in the last part of your book, you lay out three conceivable futures for Congress, uh, decrepitude, rubber stamp, and revival. We may want revival, but to many, the scenario appears far-fetched in a polarized America, perhaps requiring, as you put it, a deus ex machina. That being said, there must be some positive change that's possible. Uh, lay out for me where legislators could plausibly start making pro- real progress towards returning regular order and deliberation to the House. Uh, for example, what piece of advice would you give uh, Speaker uh, Representative Mike Johnson, who was elected Speaker not more than 30 minutes ago? Well, I would say, you know, what we were talking about with the last question is is directly relevant here. And what we're seeing right now happen with House Republicans has been very messy and maybe embarrassing to some people. It seems like they just can't get their act together. But I do think that there's a more charitable way to understand it, which is that the institution is working through some of these deeper issues that aren't just about the Republican Party, but about how the chamber works and and what its place is in the larger political system. And so to my mind, it's it's some ground for optimism that we're seeing all this churning. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. The scenario that I lay out in my book to generate this revival moment uh, does seem a little far-fetched in a way, but a lot of what we've seen go on in the House in 2023 uh, would have seemed far-fetched to observers of the institution not long ago. Uh, and, you know, I think there's at least an opportunity to use all this turmoil to chart a new path for the institution. It doesn't have to go that way. We can see the two parties sort of regroup and um, go after each other in the same old familiar way. That's that's certainly a real possibility. Um, there's a lot of bad blood in both directions. That makes that somewhat likely. But I do think there's an opportunity to say, all right, well, I'm, I'm a conservative speaker with unimpeachable conservative bona fides, but I'm somebody who's wanting to do work for the American people. 
I think Mike Johnson has a good record of saying he's somebody who wants to figure out how to work with the other side, not just brand them as enemies. Uh, there's a very good AEI panel that I was watching earlier this morning where Johnson and uh, former representative uh, Mark Walker from North Carolina were talking with former AEI president Arthur Brooks at AEI. And, and Johnson really, yeah, he, he wanted to characterize himself as somebody who wants to make deals, wants to make things work, um, wants to get things done, doesn't want to just look at the other side of the aisle as, as enemies. So I think that gives him a path to chart, you know, something different for the institution. I think that would be healthy and, and maybe conservatives because they see him as, as one of their own will let him have the chance. So I think it's an exciting time in the house. I think this is healthy evolution playing out in front of our eyes, even if parts of it seem, uh, seem like they're driven by an, an inability to get, get it together. Uh, so I, I wouldn't necessarily bet against decrepitude. <laughs> um, unfortunately, that's sort of the, the path of least resistance I talk about in my book. But, uh, but I actually see the turmoil of this year as a pretty positive sign. And now for the last question, which we ask to all of our guests on the campus exchange. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? Well, I think one thing I will say on just a life advice level is I wish I had understood more just how precious it is to, to, to be a young person with your future sprawling out in front of you and, and not having so many cares. Uh, I, think, I think your time as a young person is very precious and you should try to be grateful for, for it if you're enjoying it. Uh, I, I would also say I think I would wish I could tell my younger self the secret that nobody has read all the books. Nobody has read all the important books. Nobody, nobody knows it all. Uh, it's okay to just start somewhere and start biting off what you can chew and, and taking your best shot at answering things because that's what most, uh, most everyone is doing, even if they have more experience and more book learning than you do. Uh, there's really sort of nothing stopping a lot of young people from, from mixing it up in the public sphere more than they feel comfortable doing. Uh, and so they should know uh, that, that sort of the most important thing is to give yourself permission and just start, make a start somewhere um, rather than waiting until you're perfectly prepared at some later date, because that, that date's never going to come. And uh, for, for a lot of smart, smart people interested in conservative ideas today, your voices are, are very badly needed right now. And, and I would really just encourage people to start engaging in the public sphere uh, because uh, if you don't, somebody else will. <laughs> And uh, probably if, if the reticent ones were less reticent, we'd all be better off. Dr. Wallach, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for talking with me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. 
If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.